0: Today on Something You Should Know, can coffee really stunt your growth or sober you up? I'll explore that. Then, the troubling truth about generic drugs, despite what drug companies and the government say.
1: They've been saying there is no difference between the brand and the generic. If we've approved the drug, then patients can take it with confidence, but you know what? The neurologists, the cardiologists, the psychiatrists, they have noticed difference in their patients.
0: Also, the sun, find out why a little sun is really good for your health, and figuring out the best career for you and how to get ahead.
2: One of the big mistakes that people make is that they assume that the job that they're supposed to get is supposed to match their major in college or some particular topic that they always thought that they were going to love, rather than actually focusing on a different set of issues, which is what's deeply important to you.
0: All this today on
2: Something You Should Know. Something you should know, fascinating intel, the world's top experts, and practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hi,
0: welcome. I got a note the other day from someone who said, you have the most interesting advertisers on your podcast. And I know a a lot of companies want to advertise on this podcast because I guess the word is out that for many of those companies, the Something You Should Know audience is very responsive. And if you hear an advertisement on this podcast that sounds interesting, I hope you will check it out and think about doing business with them. Because when you do, that helps them decide to come back and advertise and that supports this podcast. And any of the advertisers who have promo codes or websites that you need to check out, All of those links are in the show notes. First up today, if you love and crave your morning coffee fix, you may have also wondered about those things you've heard about coffee that are problematic. Well, let's take a look at some of them. First is that coffee dehydrates you, and this idea stems from the fact that caffeine is a diuretic and that makes you lose water. However, in studies, researchers found no evidence that moderate consumption of any caffeine-containing beverage leads to fluid loss in excess of what's ingested. Basically, the fluid going out is replaced by the fluid coming in. You've probably heard that coffee sobers up drunk people. And no one's really sure where that started, although I know I've seen it in, like, old movies and stuff. But there is absolutely no evidence anywhere that anything in coffee can counteract the effects of alcohol. Coffee stunts your growth. I remember hearing this when I was a kid, and, and this actually started back in the early 1900s when Postum, which was a coffee alternative made from roasted wheat bran, wheat, and molasses, they began a smear campaign denouncing coffee's effects on people's health, especially children. And it worked. Ads terrified parents by telling them that Coffee stunted their children's growth and would make their kids jittery, nervous, and unable to learn in school. But there is nothing in coffee that has anything to do with a person's growth. And that is something you should know. So, here is my perception, my recollection of what I know about (laughs) generic drugs, boiled down to a paragraph. And that is that for the longest time, I have heard and I have been told and I have believed that generic drugs are just as good as name-brand drugs. They're equivalent. And that any difference between a generic drug and its name-brand equivalent is cosmetic. It's the design of the pill or the color of the pill. But in fact, they are exactly the same. And you, as the lucky consumer, will you get to pay less for the generic drug, and get the same therapeutic effect as the name-brand drug. But I've also heard reports of people saying that generic drugs do not work as well, or the results are different. And the response back from whoever, the drug companies, doctors, pharmaceutical companies, the FDA, the response back is always No, it's all in your head. Generics are equivalent. There is no difference. Well, wait a minute. Investigative journalist Catherine Eban decided to look into this, and what she found will likely shock you. Catherine is the author of a new book called Bottle of Lies, the inside story of the generic drug boom. Hi, Catherine. Welcome.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: So let's start with this discrepancy of people who claim that generic drugs don't work as well, and pharmaceutical companies, the FDA, doctors, whoever, saying they are they are equivalent, they are the same, not to worry. So who do we believe?
1: Generics are supposed to be regulated exactly the same as the brand name drugs. But in my investigation, which took a decade and took me to four different continents, what I found is that most of our generic drugs, are manufactured overseas in India and China. Though the FDA shows up in the U.S. at manufacturing plants unannounced, overseas they're doing something really different, which is they're giving these plants weeks and sometimes months of advance notice that they're coming. And these plants are staging their inspections. They're fabricating data, quality data. They're cleaning up bird infestations, they're shredding documents, and this is all basically to present a picture of a uh, a plant that's following all the rules and regulations. So in fact, um, the generic drugs that Americans are getting in many instances are not what they are supposed to be on paper.
0: And what does that picture look like? Is it 2% of them? Is it 88% of them, and what's wrong with them, and what's in there if the uh, active ingredient isn't? And uh, Paint the picture for me.
1: Yeah. So let me give you an example. Uh, in the book, I follow a young FDA investigator named Peter Baker. And over the course of five years, he went into 86 drug plants in India and China. And in 67 of them, he found elements of data falsification and deceitful practices. So that's about four-fifths of the plants he inspected. Let me just explain why that's so important. So the, the FDA does not require these plants to test the final drug product to make sure that it's safe and effective. What they do require is that the plants record minute by minute all of their manufacturing steps. In data that basically spells out that the drug is safe. That's the data that these plants are fabricating. So as a result of that, the FDA ends up approving drugs that are not bioequivalent. In some instances, they've had glass fragments in them. They may contain Uh, toxic impurities, there is just a widespread recall of blood pressure medication, which had a carcinogen in it, which was being manufactured overseas in India and China. So these are some of the consequences of this fabrication.
0: So how big a problem, though? How big a problem is this? Is this a case of falsifying data and lying, and so the consequence is a couple of bad batches of drugs get through, Or is this rampant? Is this a huge headline-making story?
1: When, When I've mentioned some of these drug recalls that have occurred because of carcinogens in the medication or glass particles in the medication, those aren't small little recalls. Those are millions and millions of pills. So I can safely say right now that millions of Americans have been affected by the blood pressure recalls, Uh, Millions of Americans got the generic Lipitor that were suffused with glass particles. Um, So these are really widespread incidents. And the problem is 90% of our drug supply is generic, and the majority of those are manufactured overseas. So any listener who goes and fills a prescription at a pharmacy The odds are it's going to be generic and it will have likely been manufactured in India and China. Here's
0: something that I, if I understand the process correctly, that Mm -hmm. that really baffles me. So a pharmaceutical company spends zillions of dollars developing Mm -hmm. a drug and they patent the drug and they have the exclusive rights to that drug until that patent runs out. And then anybody basically can make it. So if this is such a problem, why aren't, because I don't hear them, Why aren't the pharmaceutical companies screaming, that stuff's no good, stick with the name brand?
1: In some cases they are, but this issue has actually become a problem for brand name companies too. And I'll explain why. Eighty percent of the active ingredient in all of our drugs, whether brand or generic, is being manufactured overseas. The majority, again, in India and China. And brand-name companies are setting up manufacturing plants overseas. They're importing drug ingredients from overseas. So in a way, these issues of how to regulate a global drug supply are also affecting the brand-name companies. And some of those brand-name companies, so that they don't lose market share, have opened up generic companies. And they're continuing to market uh, their their own generic version of their own drugs once they've lost patent exclusivity. But even the brand name companies don't actually know in many cases what is going on in their own plants overseas.
0: It, It just seems so suspect to me that for the longest time I've known people and I've had the experience of switching to a generic version of a drug and it doesn't it doesn't work the same. It doesn't feel the same. The symptoms are different. It just, you can tell it's not the same drug. And all of us have been told by the FDA and the pharmaceutical companies, now, now, it's all in your head. It's psychosomatic. Don't worry. It's all the same. And here you come along and say, no, you, you may have been right all along that these drugs are not the same.
1: That's exactly right. So, for example, I feature in the book uh, several doctors from the Cleveland Clinic who began to grow aware that they were having trouble stabilizing their patients when they were switched to certain generics. For example, there was a doctor who treats heart transplant patients, and the Cleveland Clinic pharmacist got concerned about a certain Indian generic, which was an immunosuppressant. So Transplant patients have to take those drugs for the rest of their lives. And the Cleveland Clinic said, we're not going to carry this Indian uh, immunosuppressant anymore made by Dr. Reddy's. So they cleared it out of the pharmacies. But then, you know, their patients get discharged. They go to a pharmacy. They get dispensed. The Dr. Reddy's tacrolimus. And you know what? They wound up back in the ER with symptoms of organ rejection. And in fact, one of these patients died. Um, And so that is a case in which, you know, it's very hard to control what version you get switched to. And it does have real, it can have real consequences for patients.
0: My conversation today is with investigative journalist Catherine Eban. She's author of a new book that's really blowing the lid off the generic drug industry. It's called Bottle of Lies, the inside story of the generic drug boom. something you should know, I'm pretty sure you're going to like TED Talks Daily. And you get TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. So, Catherine, when doctors and drug companies, when they say, oh, no, 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 you're wrong, the drug mm-hmm. is exactly the same and has the exact same active ingredient, and, and, and anything that you think you're experiencing different, it, it's you, not the drug— Well, they're saying that based on something. They're saying that because they believe something. Where did did they get sold this bill of goods to reassure their patients there's no problem?
1: I think it's because the FDA has been telling us all of this. You know, they've been saying there is no difference between the brand and the generic. There is no difference between different generics. If we've approved the drug, then patients can take it with confidence. But you know what? The doctors who prescribe drugs that require very precise dosing are not comfortable with this. So the neurologists, the cardiologists, the endocrinologists, the psychiatrists, they have noticed difference in their patients. And the way that I got started investigating all of this, uh, you'd be interested. I was contacted in 2008 by a radio show host. Uh, A guy named Joe Graydon who runs the People's Pharmacy. Oh, sure.
0: I've known Joe for a long time.
1: Yeah. And he said to me, all these patients are contacting me, writing to me, saying they feel these strange symptoms when their drugs are switched. And he said, I've gone to the FDA and I brought this to their attention and they've told me it's psychosomatic, you know, the drugs look different, they're a different shape, the patients are reacting because of that, and he didn't buy it. So he said to me, you know, we need somebody with real investigative firepower to look into this issue. And my investigation basically took me 7,000 miles away from the FDA headquarters to try to figure out what was happening in the manufacturing plants making these drugs.
0: Is there a concern here of of the baby in the bathwater that, yeah, there are some problems, but are there some straight-up stand-up players and, and we need to not paint everybody with a broad, same broad brush here?
1: You know, there are. I mean, there are companies that have clean inspectional records. They don't appear to be cutting corners and fabricating data. Um, you know, I think it's kind of a perfect storm of a globalized drug supply, companies that are operating far away from the oversight of the FDA, you know, an under-resourced regulator, um, and really a fundamental lack of information for patients. So, for example, if you buy a box of cereal, the labeling tells you where that cereal was made. And same thing with your shirt or your pants. But none of that information goes to consumers of medication. We don't know where our drugs are made, where the active ingredients are made, because the pharmaceutical companies have fought against it. Um, So I think there needs to be a kind of consumer revolution where patients become aware of these issues.
0: But as a patient... I don't really care where it's made. There's nothing I can do with that information. What I want to know is, is it what it says it is? I don't care where where they put the goo in the bottle. I just want to know, is it what it says it is?
1: Right. And that is really hard to know. But that's why I'm telling patients that they need to be aware of how they feel, because that's important information. I mean, there are patients who got all of these symptoms after they were switched, didn't attribute it to the the new generic that they were on, and went on crazy medical odysseys, seeing 10 doctors and specialists to try to figure out what was wrong with them, you know, until they realized, well, wait a second, all of this started after I picked up this new prescription.
0: Is it safe to assume that at the core of this problem is money, that cutting corners and making generic pills that aren't quite up to snuff improves profits and that's what's going on, Or, or is it just sloppiness? Is it people just not keeping their eye on the ball.
1: You know, my investigation is showing that it's absolutely profits at the core of this because the companies want to be first uh, to market with their generic. They want market share. There's actually added incentives financially for the company that is first to market with a generic. And so in some instances, uh, the companies don't know yet how to make the drugs well enough. They're fabricating data and getting approval from the FDA, and then literally as they're selling the drug, they go back secretly into their laboratories to try to figure out how to manufacture it properly.
0: Whoa, really? So, really? so, So they make it up in the beginning and then try to figure it out later.
1: That's right. And the FDA is making the claim, well, it's because of the change and patients aren't used to it, and that's why they're complaining. And I suspect that there's actually a different reason why they're complaining, because they're getting a drug that isn't bioequivalent, because the companies don't know yet how to make it.
0: So why doesn't, as you said in the beginning, the FDA announces weeks in advance that they're coming, and they clean up their act for the inspection and all that. But when the drugs come here, why don't they open up a box put the pill under a microscope, and check to see what's in it?
1: It's a great question. Surprisingly, there's actually no systematic and routine testing of the drugs once they are on the market. And this is why the integrity of the data is so important, because what the FDA has basically said is, look, you know, even if you can't test a million pills, right? So even if you test one out of every... 500,000, it's still not going to prove to you that all of the drugs are safe and effective, but that's what the data is supposed to do, that the the manufacturing data as a sort of minute-by-minute blueprint of the manufacturing process is supposed to do that. But they're fabricating that data. That's the problem. Um, So it's 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 a real consumer issue here.
0: I still scratch my head. And wonder because I think so many people have had an inkling because of all this. The generic doesn't work the same stuff that's been going on for decades.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Why there isn't more? There aren't more doctors screaming about this. There aren't more consumer groups screaming about this. I mean, Joe Graydon is a is a good uh, advocate for consumers. He always has mm-hmm. been. But, but but why is he and now you kind of the lone wolves here?
1: Well, let me put it this way. It took me a decade to connect all these dots, right, between what the patients are experiencing, what is happening in these manufacturing plants, what the FDA is claiming. You know, and I also got all of uh, 20,000 internal FDA documents, memos, emails, as part of all of this, sort of exposing what's really going on inside the agency.
0: And what's going Uh, on inside the agency?
1: Well, I'll tell you, one of the things that's happening investigators are going into these plants overseas, and they're recommending the strongest sanctions possible against these plants. It's called official action indicated. And and if if you're dubbed OAI, then you've got to immediately clean up your act, or you could get a warning letter or an import alert. And back in Maryland, some of these bureaucrats are downgrading those recommendations. In other words, they're taking the plants off of the regulatory hook. they're saying, "Well, they promised to clean up their act, so we're going to trust them, and we're going to trust that they're going to do that
0: why so I... what, 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 <laughs> what's in it for them to what's in it for a regulator to put the public at risk? What's the payoff to them Well, less paperwork It's
1: a great, it's a great question um some of these regulators go on and get jobs in the generic drug industry.
0: (laughs) Gee, didn't see that coming.
1: (laughs) Yeah, right. I mean, it's a revolving door scenario. Or in some instances, they're worried about drug shortages, right? And uh, you've probably heard about drug shortages, where we don't have enough of critical, you know, necessary drugs. And so if they put an import alert on a plant, hey, there's going to be more drug shortages because we're not getting these drugs, and so, in some cases that I've documented, they're making the decision better to get contaminated drugs or unsterile drugs uh, than no drugs at all. And those are some of the trade offs.
0: <laughs> it's better to get contaminated drugs than no <laughs> drugs at all. Where's the I mean, that's baffling why anybody would say that. Uh, How is a contaminated, useless, or altered drug better than no drug at all? I I don't know.
1: Well, you know, that's a great question. I mean, as somebody pointed out to me, uh, a drug that doesn't work is not a cost savings, right? Right. And I'll bet you that a whole bunch of your listeners have experienced a situation where they picked up their prescription and their drugs just didn't work.
0: So, given the state of affairs, and you've laid it out pretty well, but so now what? What do you do? What, what's a consumer of drugs supposed to do?
1: If your listeners want to go to my website, which is Katherineban.com, I have a, a guide there of how to actually investigate your own drugs. Okay? So, let's say you take a maintenance medication, you find out the name of the manufacturer, Then I provide a link where you can go into the FDA website and you can see, has that manufacturer gotten a warning letter? What has the FDA found at their plants? Then you can go into a guide called the Orange Book, which is on the FDA's website, and you can see a list of all the manufacturers that have been approved for a given drug. Obviously, people have enough to do in their busy lives and don't necessarily want to be Sherlock Holmes when it comes to their own prescriptions, but I think it is important for consumers to get somewhat involved in understanding who's making their drugs.
0: Well, this is really big stuff, and it's interesting that people have been saying things for so long that these drugs don't work like the name-brand drugs, and now there's proof that's true. Catherine Eban has been my guest. She's author of the book Bottle of Lies, The Inside Story of the Generic Drug Boom. There's a link to her book in the show notes, and I've also put a link to her website where you can check out your own drugs if you like. Thanks for being here, Catherine.
1: Thank you so much. Really fun to talk to you.
0: From the beginning, your professional life has consisted of basically three pieces. First, you have to know how to get a job. Second, you have to know how to do the job so that, third, you can advance in your career and get another job. So that's it. You get a job, you do a job, and you move on. And there really isn't a handbook to do these things. Most of us just we do the best we can. We maybe get some advice from someone with a little more experience, but, but mainly we just try to figure it out as we go along. It turns out, though, that there is some science to this science that everyone should be aware of and can use in their own professional lives. Art Markman is at the forefront of this science. He is a professor of psychology and marketing at the University of Texas at Austin, and he has a new book called Bring Your Brain to Work, using cognitive science to get a job, do it well, and advance in your career. Hi, Art. Good to have you back on the podcast.
2: Oh, Thanks, Mike. It's great to be here.
0: So, explain why you decided to really get into this topic because I think it's important. I think that that, that it fills a need.
2: One of the things that, that i 've noticed is that uh, career success involves a lot of things that you never learn in school, so despite the amount of education people get. we we don't necessarily learn how to interact effectively with people, how to be productive, how to be an effective leader, and yet a lot of work in the field of cognitive science, where where, uh, I have my intellectual home, teaches a lot about the way people function and, and the way that we interact with others. And so I felt that drawing lessons from that field to help people get a job, to help people succeed at that job, and to help people manage the transition from one job to another would, be, uh, would provide insights that, that they wouldn't be able to get otherwise.
0: Yeah, well, I think it's a great idea because I've, I've noticed, certainly, that there are some people Who are good at some of that, like they're they're really good at getting jobs, they're really good at people like them and they get the job, but then they're not very good at doing the job. And then there are other people who do the job very well, but they're not particularly good at selling themselves and getting the job. So there's a lot of uh, uh, people get a little bit of this, but not all of this.
2: That, yeah and they they end up learning by trial and error most of the time because they assume that there isn't really a base of knowledge that they could acquire that would actually give them principles for thinking about how to do these things effectively
0: so let's uh, let's touch on all of them if we can and and what's the hit me with some of the main points of let's start with how to get a job
2: yeah, so there's several facets here: one is to try to figure out. Uh, where your values are uh, at any given moment. Because one of the big mistakes that people make is that they assume that the job that they're supposed to get is supposed to match their major in college or some particular topic that they always thought that they were going to love rather than actually focusing on a slightly different set of issues, which is what's deeply important to you. Is it success? Is it helping others? Is it tradition and family? And trying to structure uh, the jobs that you apply for around those values, because the fact is that you're going to have to learn a ton in order to be able to do whatever job that you get. So you really want to find things that, that begin to fit those values you have and, and to really ignore that advice that says you've got to follow your passion, I think what you really have to do is to find things that, that feel like a good fit with, you are, with, with who you are and then learn to love those things. So that's, that's one element. I think another element is that you have to learn to think the way that hiring managers are going to think. So you have to recognize that early on when they're looking at a pile of resumes, they're in a mode of rejection. And so you have to scan your resume for anything that's going to take you out of the running which, which could be uh, some significant negative, but it can also be silly things like typos. I mean, why the reason why you need to double and triple check what, what you've uh, written is because you don't want to give anyone an easy reason for throwing you out of the pile. And then... After you've you've passed that stage of rejection, you have to give people a reason to want you. So you have to also focus on how can I actually create some reason for a hiring manager to look at my materials and think I'm the person that they want. So you really have to put yourself in that mindset. And and then one last piece on 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 the, the aspect of getting a job is you want to recognize that that you might think when you're putting your materials together, you should throw in every positive thing you can think about yourself. Uh, because you're, the assumption would be that each positive thing you say increases somebody's sense of your overall value. But actually, what people end up doing when they evaluate a resume is that they average. And so if you have four great things and then one mediocre thing, That mediocre thing brings down the average. So if it's not obligatory for you to have it on there, you know, it's the honorable mention in some, you know, in some startup competition that you were a part of, uh, maybe you leave that out because it it isn't necessarily going to improve the overall quality uh, of the materials that you sent in.
0: So I want to go back to what you said about people think that they have to do whatever their major was in college or, you know, that that's the guiding force here, and you said that that you need to do things that are are also in line with your values. But I don't know what I don't really have a, a very good sense of what that means. Like, could you give me an example?
2: Sure. So um, so I, I, I'll give you an example on both sides of what you said. I mean, the first is everybody thinks, well, my major has to has to determine what I do, and and of course, you know, there are plenty of people who major in things like history. Well, just because you were a history major doesn't mean that the only job you're qualified for is historian, right? Because uh, history majors have actually learned a tremendous amount about uh, researching through documents and about following the threads of stories over time that that can be really valuable for understanding what's going on inside of an organization. So on the first piece, uh, your major doesn't necessarily have to determine what you do for a living. On the second piece, the question is, what values do you have? And there are there are lots of of well validated scales for those. But the values can be things like achievement. So, to what extent is is being successful uh, a, a significant value for you? Well, for some people, that's that's all they want. They just want to be successful in their career. For other people. They're, they don't necessarily need to be the top dog. They just need to, to, to be able to do good work. Because for those, for some people, for example, what they care about is benevolence. They want to be, uh, they want to do things that are good for, uh, for other people. And so they would like to work for an organization that they perceive as having a positive impact on the world, even though they don't necessarily need to be the leader or acknowledged as being a front-runner in that organization. So you need to understand what your values are before you can figure out whether a particular job is likely to be a good fit for you long-term.
0: Well, you bring up something I I guess I've never really thought about, but when most people become a history major in college, if that's their major, isn't there usually the reason why is that maybe that's something they want to do after college, that the people don't major in something because it's just on a lark. It interests them, but they're going to dismiss it when college is over. Yes? No?
2: Well, actually, if you look at the statistics, for example, here at the University of Texas, where I work, only four percent of the students in in the College of Liberal Arts, which includes departments like history, only 4% of those students go on to graduate programs in the area that they studied. So actually, most of our students are going off to do something other than the, the particular major that they had. So they, they might find history or political science or psychology or sociology interesting, but they don't necessarily want to be uh, uh, someone who is a historian or a psychologist or a sociologist, but they want to use those skills uh, in order to be successful in their career.
0: That really surprises me, but it is what it is. I, I, I would have never guessed that. I would have thought it was much higher. The percentage would be much yeah. higher that, that if you major in sociology, it's because you want to work in sociology. So-
2: yeah, no, it's, Yeah, it's fascinating that it doesn't work out that way. But here's the interesting thing. One of the things universities don't do a very good job of is actually telling students the complete set of skills that they have that, that they got as a result of being part of that major. And so because 96% of the students go off to do something else, they often aren't able to articulate their skills very well when they enter the job market for the first time. As a result, liberal arts students often make less money on their first jobs than uh, students from majors like business who have an easier time articulating what they're capable of but 10 years down the line, the difference in pay between the business majors and the liberal arts majors vanishes because actually the skill set for liberal arts students uh, is, is often quite useful for succeeding in business context.
0: And also in the getting a job category that we're talking about here, my experience is that there is, there is something about your likability, that the, the personal connection, has a lot to do with whether or not you get offered a job.
2: Yeah, you know, and that's, that's really the main function of an interview. When after, after they finally call you in for the interview, they've decided that you more or less have the qualifications for the job. I mean, every once in a while, they make a mistake and discover in the interview process that you're not really uh, a good fit for the job from a skill standpoint. But 95% of what they're trying to figure out in, in the job interview setting is whether, there's, whether you're somebody that they want to work with, whether, whether you engage them in a way that will make you a good colleague. And so it's really important to think about how you can engage with the interviewer or interviewers, depending on on how they structure it, and and to really uh, use that as an opportunity to, to create conversation and to create rapport. You don't necessarily want to be shelling off, and you also don't want to freeze up. I think a lot of people have such fear of evaluation that they, they, they worry, well, I don't know if I'm going to give the right answer, so I shouldn't say very much, rather than recognizing that the real purpose of each question is to start a conversation and then to allow the kind of back and forth that, that creates uh, a sense that you'd be an interesting person to have around.
0: Let's move on to uh, doing the job.
2: Let's start with communication because it's a big thing in, in the workplace these days. You know, part of the problem with our distributed workforce is that we we actually end up engaging in interactions with people that are really not ideal the the human ability to communicate is optimized for small numbers of people communicating in real time face to face in visual contact and and that and that enables us to use all sorts of aspects of our communicative ability. We can use tone of voice. We can use uh, gestures. We can use facial expressions. And the further away you get from that, the harder and harder it is to communicate. And so much of the communication that we do in the workplace these days is done through text. For example, we either send instant messages or we send emails. Uh, and so, you can't hear somebody's tone of voice. Often when you write a request to somebody, it feels very terse. You can come off as feeling uh, as sounding really demanding when, in fact, you were trying to sound friendly. So it's important to understand the, the factors that lead to good communication and then to understand how the various other modes of communication in the workplace can actually make it harder to communicate so that you can actually become better at using all of those modes as well as possible.
0: Yeah, I've, everybody's had that experience of the electronic communication can really be misinterpreted.
2: Yeah, uh, absolutely. You know, and, and one of the things that's really important to do on the other side of that is to clarify as, as much as you can. If, if you Uh, In real conversation, if somebody says something you don't completely understand, you can stop them. In fact, if you're in visual contact with them, you can just give a quizzical look and they'll often stop and say, I think I lost you. When in in email, for example, somebody asks you to do something, if you're not 100% sure of what to do, clarify. You have to ask more explicitly than you might have to do if you were having a conversation with someone. Because the last thing you want to do is to misinterpret a request and spend several hours doing the wrong thing.
0: Yeah, well, and and another big part, it seems to me, uh, where people miss the boat about keeping a job and doing a job well is they think that, that it be kind of begins and ends with the work, that as long as you do the work, you're fine, but there's more to it than that.
2: Yeah, I mean, no, no, absolutely. I mean, for one thing, you're trying to create relationships in the workplace. I mean, a lot of your success at work in the long term is actually dependent on the kinds of relationships that you create. You know, It's funny, they, you know, there's, a, there's this sense that, that a really good salesperson is able to sell something to somebody that they don't really want for an absurd amount of money. And maybe that's a good salesperson if, if you're only going to interact with them once. But, but really great salespeople are the ones who get you exactly what you need for the right price. Because now, every time that they contact you and say that they have something you need, you're receptive to hearing them again and so it 's it 's all about relationships, whether you 're selling a product whether you 're trying to you know engage with a colleague. When you develop that level of trust uh, that goes above and beyond just the work that you did because now that that level of trust enables Uh, your opportunities for advancement. It it supports uh, your ability to take on new responsibilities. And so, you know, I think we undervalue those kinds of relationships in the workplace.
0: All right. So we've talked about getting a job and doing a job. Let's move on to moving on from your job, moving up in your career.
2: So now uh, you know there's several aspects of moving on, right? One one aspect, of course, is that, uh, that that there are times where you just feel like you've stagnated in your in your current job. And and at that point, you know, before you you, you find yourself getting so thoroughly bored that you're not doing a, a good job anymore, you really want to start looking for that next position. And that means understanding what those qualifications are going to be for that job, potentially getting additional education, whether it's uh, an advanced degree, whether it's taking other courses or doing things online, but preparing yourself for that next phase. You want to re- take another look at your values because they change over time. Early on in your life, you might think achievement is the most important thing, and then you might shift and think, you know what, doing good for humanity is more important for me right now. So you might decide that the career path you're on isn't quite the right one. And, and then you actually want to enlist a lot of the people in that social network that you have to, to help you to get that job. Even people within your organization, I mean, letting people know that you're looking uh, to move forward can be useful because they may actually keep you in mind when a position opens up and, and groom you for that. So you want to have people who are helping to move you forward in, in the organization. And, and really, the best leaders are ones who are trying to develop the people who work for them because... A that makes the organization better, and B, any good leader who helps people to advance creates long-term allies within the organization. People who now feel like they owe a piece of their career uh, to that leader, and so it's a it's 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 a great strategy in which you give something to someone else that actually pays dividends for you.
0: When you're looking to move up, and there's always pressure on everyone that you know you need to move up, but but sometimes people don't want to move up. They want to stay where they are. They like what they do. They they don't, because they're a good salesman, don't necessarily want to be a sales manager. They want to be a salesman.
2: Oh, yeah, and I and, and I think it's really important, again, to be thinking about those values, you know, and not to adopt other people's values because because the culture says that or because other people in your life say that. If you're in a job in which you find it fulfilling, you enjoy the day-to-day interactions, you uh, it, it, it pays uh, a salary that, it, that that allows you to live a lifestyle that you appreciate well then you're in a great position and 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 the fact is it is dissatisfaction that tends to drive us to do new things when you are satisfied with something you're doing it does not create motivation to change and so when when you're completely satisfied with what you're doing hey ride that you know very few people are lucky enough to, to really feel completely satisfied with, with core aspects of what, what's going on in their lives.
0: Well, I think for anyone, if, if they are to look back at how their career has gone to this point, it's just kind of haphazard. It goes the way it goes. It kind of has a life of its own. You do what you do. But, but it's interesting to hear that there's some real science to how to do this better. Art Markman has been my guest. He's a professor of psychology and marketing at the University of Texas, and his new book is called Bring Your Brain to Work, Using Cognitive Science to Get a Job, Do It Well, and Advance in Your Career. Thanks, Art. I appreciate you coming back.
2: Yeah, well, thank you so much. I I really appreciate it.
0: While we've all been told to stay out of the sun to prevent skin cancer and aging of the skin, Staying in the sun can help a lot of other things, as long as you don't overdo it and use sunscreen. According to a study in Sweden, avoiding the sun can be just as detrimental to your lifespan as smoking cigarettes. The study looked at 30,000 Swedish women over 20 years old and found that life expectancy for those who avoided the sun was as much as 2.1 years shorter than the lifespan of those who spent a lot of time in the sun. Women who had more sun exposure were at a lower risk for developing several diseases, including diabetes, multiple sclerosis, and heart disease. While sun does age your skin, hurt your eyes, and cause skin cancer, it can also improve your mood, help you sleep better at night, improve acne and psoriasis, and boost vitamin D levels. And that is something you should know. Follow us on Twitter. We're at SomethingYSK.